This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a new release. I'm Keith Phipps, here once again with Scott Tobias, Tasha Robinson, and Genevieve Kosky. This week, we're talking about Pixar's classic 1995 feature debut, Toy Story, the first computer animated feature film. In the first half of this week's discussion, we talked about the history behind Toy Story and how it fit into the Pixar story. Now we're going to take a closer look at how Pixar's latest film, The Good Dinosaur, ties into that history and how it looks when placed side by side next to Toy Story. Part of what makes The Good Dinosaur such a compelling contrast with Toy Story is the former's grandness of scale. Where the action of Toy Story is largely confined to a pair of houses, a backyard, a pizza place, and a couple of vehicles used to get between those locations, The Good Dinosaur takes as its stage nothing less than the Old West, and by that I mean the very Old West. The film set in a prehistoric version of Wyoming, in which the dinosaur-eradicating meteor of our own past has missed the Earth. Consequently, dinosaurs have set up a society that's eclipsed what little civilization primitive humans had developed. The dang wilderness critters coming over the fence, eating our food, and I've had it up to my snout. If this keeps up, we won't have enough food to survive the winter. And that's why you are gonna catch that critter. comes a critter. And this is how you're gonna finish the job. When that critter's taken care of, you'll put your mark on the silo right next to mine. I'll take care of the critter, Papa. It won't stand a chance. Scott, let's start with you. Sure. What element stands out as as uniting Toy Story and the Good Dinosaur? Well, I think I think um, Toy Story introduced neurosis as a major theme in Pixar's work. <laughs> the, the Toy Story's book ended by scenes uh, where the toys are doing re- reconnaissance work to see what new presents Andy is getting first for his birthday, later for Christmas. Uh, the worry is that Andy will get a shiny new toy and stop playing with them which is legitimate because it actually happens. Uh, but it turns out that Andy is an exceptionally good caretaker since he passes off every one to another little kid at the end of Toy Story 3. Uh, but there's a fretfulness that carries through a lot of Pixar's work. The fear of irrelevance in the Monsters, Inc. movies. The fear of obsolescence in Cars and WALL-E. The fear of conformity in The Incredibles. The fear of growing up in Inside Out. Um, I feel like the blue turtleneck-wearing sadness character in Inside Out <laughs> dominates the Pixar brain. Uh, in fact, it's got, I found it kind of a relief watching Toy Story to see how much joy wins out compared to the other two. And in The Good Dinosaur, uh, uh, Arlo, the uh, dinosaur, the good dinosaur, he's, I guess he's, he's, he's the good a, one. Presumably he's the, he, I, that, this is why I find the, t- the title like so generic. He's the good dinosaur. His dad could be the good dinosaur. They're all pretty good dinosaurs. Yeah, he's, I'm, yeah they're all... They're all, they're good. They're all gr- very good dinosaurs. Um, but, well, then why isn't the movie called The Very Good Dinosaurs? Yeah, so many good dinosaurs. But, they, you know, ultimately you follow him, so it's singular rather than plural. Uh, but uh, but he's, he's a bundle of anxiety. You know, he's a runty kid. He needs to work through his tenderness and fear in order to grow up. Uh, and he comes out of the, you know, the way I think of it, he comes out of the egg like like a kid who's already had helicopter parents, and he and he, and he has to learn to be independent and strong, you know, without being monitored, um, which I feel like is a very modern form of bravery, um, and uh, so, so I don't know, I, I feel like that's that is the connection. I mean, I think you start with worry in in uh, Pixar films, and in, in, in try I think to get past that worry, at least a lot of them. I mean, to some degree, you have to because the the whole point of these movies is setting up a goal that is defined by emotion and then 
kind of challenging the audience to fall deeply enough into that emotion to care whether the character achieves that goal or not. I mean, caring whether uh, the baby dinosaur gets back to his parents and isn't a baby by the time he gets there, I think that's something that, you know, everybody can relate to in a very fundamental, you know, child lost or parent who's had a lost child kind of level. Relating to Woody's feelings of, well, like whether he gets played with the most becomes more abstract until you make it about the emotion. And just given how emotional he is and how the film communicates that emotion, it becomes every child's concern that a sibling is going to come along and replace them or that their parents are involved with other things or interested in other things or that somebody some other kid in class is like smarter than them or has a better like piece of technology or better clothing than them that kind of like low grade anxiety that we are being surpassed like at every moment i think links both children and adults and i i think you're right i think it runs through pixar movies and it becomes a way of motivating whether we care whether the the characters achieve their goals but i think pixar is maybe establishing a sort of new twist to that um at least in the last two movies from the seer inside out and the good dinosaur where the the overarching message seems to be it's in the case of Inside Out, it's okay to be sad. And in The Good Dinosaurs, it's okay to be afraid. And it's not about changing your flaws. Like I'm thinking back to something like Finding Nemo, where Marlin, you know, he's terrified of the great big world and all the dangers it, it has. And he ends the movie like <laughs> totally over that. He's like, yeah. all right, go, go on, Nemo, you know, go to school. Great. Have a good time. Whereas with Inside Out and The Good Dinosaur, it seems to be more about recognizing and accepting these not, I don't even want to call them flaws, these anxieties, you know, uh, sadness or fear and moving through life with them, not ignoring them. And I, I feel like that's a very kind of 2015 sensibility that it's OK to be afraid and uh, sad all the time because <laughs> life is terrible. Or maybe that's just my uh, personal reading of it. No, but. I mean, I, I think you're right, except for the part where it's a 2015 thing, because I go back to like the 1970s. This was, you know, 50 years before you were born, Genevieve. <laughs> but uh, back in the 1970s, uh, there was a, a TV thing called Free to Be You and Me that was mm-hmm. a series of... I know that. Sketches. All right. So I think I saw it on I Love the 70s on VH1. <laughs> that would make a lot of sense. Are you familiar with the song, It's All Right to Cry? I, yes. Like yes, nine-tenths of Free to Be You and Me was like either about uh, gender acceptance and, or emotional acceptance. It was it was all about like it's okay to feel what you feel. I think that's something that we keep kind of trying to reteach both children and ourselves mm-hmm. because so much of society tells us, you know, don't you're, you're not a good person if you're afraid. You're not a good person if you're not following your dreams at every moment bravely which actually brings me to brave which i think is one of the pixar films that does another interesting thing with Mm -hmm. that anxiety and fear where it becomes less about it's okay to feel this thing and more about the anxiety you're feeling about your relationship with your parents you just need to understand what they're feeling you need to understand why they're feeling it and it's less about your feelings and more about accepting other people's feelings which is also another way to process anxiety you guys would have liked my papa He wasn't scared of anything. I'm done being scared. Who said I'm not scared? But you took on a croc. And I was scared doing it. If you ain't scared of a croc biting you on the face, you ain't alive. Listen, kid, you can't get rid of fear. It's like Mother Nature. You can't beat her or outrun her. But you can get through it. You can find out what you're made of. I feel like there's a distinction that needs to be made in terms of the emotional complexity of a film like Inside Out and Good Dinosaur on that. Oh, I, on oh I'm, I'm, yeah, and, and that's something we will. Okay, I'm, we I'm should maybe talk about, yeah. at this point just kind of back up and and we haven't talked about our reactions to the movie uh, with each other at all. Did you guys like the movie? Yeah. Nah. <laughs> Sorry. <right. laughs> I think I probably liked it a little more than you guys, but I only cried two and a half times, which is pretty <laughs> low wait, by wait. Pixar standards. And and what one the half time, <laughs> it was just like a little a little misting misting up. You so, know, <laughs> I, I, there, there were no tears rolling down the face. I liked it. I, I just liked it though, and, and and it has like you know kind of a troubled history behind it, which might be why the t- the title doesn't make any sense because it was basically rewritten from the as I understand it, rewritten from the ground up fairly late in the game. The whole voice cast, except for Francis McDormand, was replaced. Um, yeah, wasn't orig- John Lithgow originally? Yeah, in it? yeah. And the original what, Neil Patrick dr- what, what is that movie? The oh, original yeah. director was pulled from it. He still works at 
Pixar, but he's not. It's Bob he, Peterson, Bob who's Peterson. the co-director of Up. Right, exactly. And and the producers, um, D- Denise Reem's quote is, the story was not working, period, full stop. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, And maybe knowing that going in, it looked really kind of patched together in some ways. I mean, it's very episodic. I don't think it works. It hangs together all that well. I think it has some of the best sequences that Pixar's ever done in it, though. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like a... It, to me, I think it's one of those like sort of not quite there movies. I'll probably go back to a lot uh, more than some some like great movies in some ways. It, if nothing else, it kind of reminds me of Dead Man more than any other oh, movie, wow. where it's just sort of like this this naive kid and his, <laughs> That's and his what guy going for I know. <laughs> <laughs> drifting through like this weird Western landscape full with eccentric, possibly insane characters. I mean, it's it's. I don't know. It's, oh, it's, I would love it if really early on somebody <laughs> told Arlo he was already dead. Yeah, yeah. Well, happier ending than Dead Man, I guess. But uh, not you know, the, the crazy pterodactyls who have the bizarre, like, storm-related religion mm-hmm. totally could have told him that. And another thing that could be straight out of, of Dead Man is, is that strange dinosaur that's surrounded by animals that seems to be making mystic pronouncements. There's yeah. even, like, a psychedelic sequence. I mean, <laughs> right. We should also note that this is not the only Pixar movie to, to undergo radical retooling fairly late in the game. Brave had that, had the same issues. Ratatouille was, you know, more or less rewritten um, to be Brad Bird's film after after a long development process. So sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Cars two also had a like had a director switched out midstream. Hmm. It amazes me at any point that they could have said the story isn't working. I mean, what what story? He, yeah. he gets he goes down river and then he goes back up river or home. I mean, like what uh, what story is there? Well, to that's get basically right? Huck oh, Finn. Oh, or I was going to say, <laughs> okay. Well, no, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying like that. That's pretty clear to me. I was going to say, you mean the story where the main protagonist is drawn away from home by the secondary protagonist, gets lost, and they have to team up to get back home, or the exact plot of Toy Story? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, to be fair about that, uh, Vox actually just put out this chart that's all the Pixar movies themes in a grid, and uh, like on a a point-by-point level, here, here are the categories. A mismatched pair of partners with serious philosophical differences, go on a wacky journey, a loved one is lost, a child comes of age, child's parent figure realizes nothing lasts forever, there's a super sad piece of music, and a wacky ensemble of supporting players, we explore the hidden world of everyday objects, someone finds their calling, an ad hoc com- community is formed by movie's end. Now, not all of the films uh, hit this, but like, an, there's a huge amount of overlap in each one of those categories. Then the final category is Cars Talk. <laughs> and uh, that for some reason, that only, that only hits two of them. But uh, there is sort of a formula at work here. And to me, one of the reasons Good Dinosaur doesn't work is it just doesn't feel like it, it hits many of those points. I didn't feel a sense of community at all from this. I like the there's a bonding relationship between the dinosaur and the boy, but that relationship feels straight out of uh, How to Train Your Dragon. There's a parental like a tragic parental loss, and it feels straight out of The Lion King. There's a dinosaur's long journey across a landscape to safety, and it feels straight out of Land Before Time. This is only the second Pixar film I've ever seen where I kept thinking. I've seen this movie before, mm. and the previous one was Cars, and it was, I mean, basically the same plot as uh, the Michael J. Fox movie, Doc Hollywood. I've seen this story beat for beat, and there's nothing here. I'll, I'll take that back. There's very little here that feels authentic and rich and personal in the way Pixar's good movies do. Yeah. I didn't hate Good Dinosaur, but I did have a very mad reaction to it. Yeah, I actually have, I have you know, two two points to make. One is, is more of a side than anything else, but we can go back to it. It's like the people who nitpick logical inconsistencies in films are just going to be, you know, dine out on this movie for a long time <laughs> because I was doing it and I hate that way of thinking about things. But but the bigger question I want to raise is what um you know does this play as as very as this film by the people who made Toy Story? Does it feel like a logical continuation of where Pixar's been going over the years? Not to me, not at all. Narratively speaking, like character speaking, just the the feeling of personal like personal stories and personality that uh, is in all of the best Pixar movies. I I don't see that here. And also, it's missing. Um, the humor. I mean, I, I think the best joke is the central joke of the of the of the meteor just kind of zooming past in the sky, and they just said, "Oh, all right, I'm, go, I'm back back to grazing." Um, I think that's a pretty good joke. And yeah, I don't it's know a if... gag with a little red bird named Denise. Is it's not bad. Okay. Yeah. Right. Mm. But uh, but it's not 
like a it's not a not a comedy factory this movie. First of all, while saying that I I did have my issues with Good Dinosaur, I this does kind of play into something which is what I've come to think of as the Wall-E effect. Wall-E was such a groundbreaking watershed movie for Pixar where it took this really daring move of having no dialogue for a big chunk of it and that's the sort of thing that could and I think did alienate a lot of younger viewers, but it really spoke to adult viewers and cinephiles. And I think that because of that, Pixar subsequently took on this reputation of being more quote unquote adult or sophisticated than a lot of other animated fare. And there's certainly something to that. We've discussed all the ways in which that is true. But, you know, Toy Story is still, it's a clearly a movie for children. There's a lot of child humor in there, you know, despite all the adult emotions. You know, there's stuff in there that appeals to adult, but the story and the humor and the characters are all very much geared toward children. They're toys. You know, it's the same with like Monsters, Inc. and the Cars movies. I, I think Good Dinosaur is very much a part of the quote unquote young viewer Pixar, as opposed to the more sophisticated Pixar that we saw earlier this year with Inside Out. And But I think placing a higher value on, you know, sophisticated Pixar is kind of short-sighted and maybe not really what the company is about or trying, you know, to do. Like, I, I think there's room for good kitty fare. And I think the Good Dinosaur is good kitty fare. I mean, I agree with you up to a point, and that's why, like, Cars did nothing for me, really, except visually, which is, uh, like, a link that these two films have. Mm -hmm. But I don't resent it the way some Pixar fans seem to. Like, It's that resentment that that, that rankles, you you know, like, the the sort of brushing. How dare they? Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, they're making movies for children, too. Yeah. Cars is weird because it seems, like, aimed at very small children or, like, old car enthusiasts like, with John Lasseter <laughs> is very much a, and like not, nobody in the middle it's something just, for the grandparents to take the grandchildren to yeah I guess Maybe. so yeah, I, I will say though I mean I, I think I'm coming across a lot more negative than I definitely am coming across <laughs> negative on the film that I, I, I do appreciate that it uh, it is a visually striking film which we'll talk about and um, and I was engaged by it and uh, it, is a, a, it is a quality piece of animation. It just becomes a thing with Pixar where you're sort of judging it against the standard that is so very high. And months after and one months of the, after the one very of the best, best films. films. Yeah. Yeah. But that's just it. I, like having just seen Inside Out, like I'm, I don't ask for every Pixar film to be like a Wally level like experiment with storytelling. I don't I don't necessarily need for them to reinvent the wheel every time out, but it becomes harder when you know that like on average you're only going to get one of these films a year and that they take, you know, somewhere between 3 to 5 years at least in planning. And then you get something like this that just feels like a little bit of a damp squib, especially after all of the stories about how much it's been reworked. It's hard not to feel a certain amount of disappointment. Maybe it's because there were two Pixar movies this year that I don't have that feeling of of disappointment because I feel like Inside Out was, it's kind of like a one for us, one for them, although I don't know who us and them are in this context. Mm. But like, I feel like it very much, the, the two movies in tandem very much show the two sides of Pixar. And in a way that made 2015 a very satisfying year for me, Pixar-wise. I just, maybe it's because I feel like I I can feel what this movie in some ways was trying to be, which was my big problem with Brave. You know, uh, Brenda Chapman, the director of Brave, has given so many interviews where she talked about how that was meant to be a very personal story about her and her daughter. And then Pixar pulled uh, pulled her off of it and put a guy who I, I interviewed when Brave came out. And he seemed like a very nice guy. But he was literally somebody who would come in to consult with them about, like, what uh, Scottish architecture and clothing would look like in a certain period. And the way he put it, it kind of seemed like they were like, eh, you know, who's not busy right now and wants to finish directing Brave? Uh, we spun the bottle and it pointed at you. And I'm sure there was a lot of self-deprecation in that description. But when you get the idea that somebody who, for whom that story was deeply meaningful was removed from it and replaced by somebody for whom it was like, oh, let's tell a funny story about a bear and a girl. Like, I want to see the original version. Here, I don't know what that original version would have looked like. I don't know anything in on that level about what the story was trying to be. But I don't feel that level of personal connection or emotion at any level in this film. Genevieve, I think we're kind of stepping on what you want to talk about, which is the Pixar protagonist. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do want to talk about the idea of the Pixar protagonist and how the company's approach to its main characters has or hasn't changed over the years. Um, One thing that struck me about Good Dinosaur is that both Arlo and Spot are clearly children. 
And as we've talked about, the movie consequently plays as more of a quote-unquote kids movie than something like Inside Out. Even though there are plenty of young characters in the Pixar feature stable, you know, your, your Nemo, Ups Russell, Boo from Monsters, Inc., the kids in The Incredibles, these films tend to have an adult or an adult-like main protagonist. You know, Woody and Buzz even come across as adult characters, even though they're you know, like a lot of Pixar protagonists, they're not humanoid characters. So, but you know, they're voiced by adults, by adult actors, and they have adult emotions, even though they're children's toys. Finding Nemo centers more on Albert Brooks's Marlin, and Up centers more on Carl. And you know, even the emotions in Inside Out have a certain like adult slash guardian vibe to them. I think it's really unusual for Pixar to focus Good Dinosaur so strongly on two characters who are children without an adult tagging along somehow. You know, they encounter adult esque characters that may play into some of what we're talking about with the good dinosaur feeling less sophisticated and i wonder what you guys think of that it's a good thought i think (laughs) um but i I don't know if i mean i think you're thinking like maybe people are hard on it for that reason not i mean i'm not necessarily like you know citing this as a defense i I think it is unusual for pixar and you know we're talking about all the ways that this movie is necessarily not innovative and to me it was interesting that it was it seemed so much like a children's movie without making those appeals to adult sensibility that we see in pretty much every other pixar movie i kind of wish it was a little stronger in that department actually yeah. uh, the best scene in the movie to me and i'm gonna make sure have you cry right now <laughs> is the scene where 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 arlo and spot bond over they communicate the both lost parents and, mm-hmm. and uh that is so beautifully done and it's not you know and it is not something that involves adults or an adult sensibility in any way. So maybe a little more immersive in that. It would have been a stronger film. I miss my family. Family. That's me. There's Libby. And Buck. And Mama. And and Papa. Family. But the thing about that scene is that scene sums up what Pixar does that that makes it successful. That scene sums up what is special about Pixar, because that scene is about two characters experiencing an emotion and the film doesn't shy away from it, doesn't turn away from it. It lingers in like the melancholy and the grief that they're feeling. And if you look at like any of the really memorable uh, like scenes from Pixar movies that, that really strike people that aren't expressly jokes, they're always about finding an emotion and, ex- and sticking with it and exploring it past a point where other animated films wouldn't. And so that film, that scene, there's just, there's a purity to the emotion that they're feeling there that's like literally nothing else in the entirety of The Good Dinosaur. So much of it kind of operates on a surface level. There's a lot of chasing. There's a lot of boo, surprise. There's a thing jumping at you. There's a lot of running around. There's a lot of fear. But that scene is about finding one explicit emotion and like just delving completely deeply into it is what happens at the beginning of up with you know carl's relationship with his wife being spelled out and then him losing her it's what happens in inside out (laughs) throughout like three-fourths of the film it's what happens in toy story 3 when the toys are thrown into the incinerator just that unflinching willingness to explore the depth of an emotion that was the scene that made me cry in the good dinosaur but it was the only moment in that film that really felt authentic to me it's actually not one of the scenes I think about when I when I talk about this film having a childlike sensibility, although it did make me cry, obviously. Um, but I'm thinking more about scenes like The Fireflies, which is, is a, a segment uh, that I, I really love the, the second time when, uh, when Arlo is showing the fireflies to Spot and just kind of the childlike abandon and sense of discovery and of sharing something with a, a friend, something you learned. Um, those, that strikes me as a very specifically childlike experience. And like I found it very moving, even though it didn't directly apply to an emotion that I feel as an adult. So we, we should talk about, and especially in terms of, you know, we looked at the, the Pixar's first effort, Toy Story, and, and, and which remains very impressive. But you can see some limitations in 1995 that they don't have in 2015. The Good Dinosaur is such a, you know, we can all agree, a 
beautiful looking film. Just and and I, I think Scott's been handing them perhaps they've gone a little. It's gotten a little too good. Scott, is that is that correct? No, I'm just being a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of just being too photorealistic, right? The, they've uh, you know one thing that's explicitly they've run into is they the, throughout their history is n- you get too photorealistic and it goes into the uncanny valley. The mm. goal is they always try to do like slightly short of photorealistic, and I think it's one reason why the characters here are so stylized and cartoony looking because they have these beautiful, very realistic. Um, backgrounds and depictions of of, uh, of the American West, and I think I think to make it to keep it in the realm of animation, even that they they have to almost have to have these uh, more stylized characters. I mean, Tasha, you you've you've certainly spent a lot of time thinking about this. What are your your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, that was my topic was kind of animation and innovation, which you know to me is what defines Pixar. And we've actually repeatedly dodged around talking about that in this two part conversation because we knew we'd be talking about it here. But I mean, Genevieve brought it up in like things like Sully's fur, the reflections on the cars in Cars. Pixar has always made a point of like with each new film creating something that we haven't seen in animation before. And with Toy Story, I going back and rewatching that film, every single time I find my jaw on the floor just looking at the textures. You know, the attention that they pay to like the texture of corduroy or the patterns on the wallpaper or the the sprues and the molding errors on the little green army men. The dents the, in the baseboards. The mm-hmm. dents in the baseboards. Yeah. The textures of the paint, the way paint flakes, the way like wood grain that's uh, covered with wax has a different quality from wood grain covered with paint. So much attention is paid to this. And with Good Dinosaur, what we're seeing is, as you say, it's like a photorealistic version of the world to the degree that at at times it doesn't even look animated. I mean, there's a sequence where like Arlo's washed up in the river after the storm and he's lying in the water. And, you know, there's this, this child to adolescent character who's suffering, who's unconscious, who's been through a dreadful loss, who's far from home. And I was like, screw the kid. I was staring at the water. The the ripples but of the water. But is the water okay? <laughs> the, but that's just it. The the backdrop that he's in is all right. It's always going to be all right. It has a timelessness to it that I think is going to hold up over the long term in like after the rest of this animation looks crude. To me, Arlo looks like a very crude and not expressive enough character, but the backgrounds are so evocative. The the world that he's in is so much more expressive than he is. See, all right, now that's where I want to push back in, in terms of the character design because I based on a conversation I heard in the ladies room after the screening and, <laughs> and based on what you just said, you know, the look of Arlo and the other dinosaurs is not going to appeal to everyone, um, particularly in the context of this hyper-realistic natural world. But personally, I loved the contrast between the super cartoony and the super realistic. And I really liked the unusual dinosaur design of the film. Um, Yeah, it was cartoony, but it was also really original. I feel like dinosaurs on film are one of those things that are always rendered fairly similarly on screen. There's not a lot of inventiveness in terms of their actual physical form, which is kind of odd when you think about it because it's not like we really know what dinosaurs look like beyond their skeletons. So I like that there was a little kind of experimentation and playfulness in this sort of like goofy dinosaur design um, I haven't really seen in uh, dinosaur-centric entertainment before. I liked it too. Uh, and and I, I liked that also that there's things like they model the T-Rexes, which, which are ranchers in the film, um, after... Uh, their movements after like cowboys riding on. I on loved a horse. the yeah, way was, the T Rexes really cool. ran, yeah, yeah. And, and the people next to me were snickering about when they were running because it, it does look kind of odd compared to like how the T Rex in Jurassic Park runs. Mm-hmm. But, I don't, I don't think that was a contemptuous snicker though. I mean, I know we we had actually just talked before the podcast about how the people sitting next to you <laughs> were snorting and making contempt noises, but when you first see the T Rexes gallop, like the like a little ripple of laughter went through the whole mm-hmm. theater, and I don't think that was contempt i think that was recognition i i hope it was i i i guess i read that differently but i i'm just saying i like the way the t-rexes ran oh it's awesome <laughs> i really like the look of the film a lot too and i think the con- contrast is key uh i mean you have you know worlds colliding that didn't collide <laughs> and yeah. so so it makes sense to have 
you know, one part of it be cartoony almost, and mm-hmm. then the another part be photorealistic. And and uh, I think it's an extremely bold and unexpected decision to, to bring those two things together. Oh and no, it works no, really no, well. Scott, Why? I, I really got to fight you on okay. that one because it's a. Have you not read uh, Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics? <laughs> uh, is that the first one? Yeah, that's the first one. Uh, that's I, the read classic li- one. I read a little bit of it. Okay, so the uh, the design of like a, a highly photorealistic backdrop and a very cartoony main character like goes way way back in animation and uh, and comics in particular. It's a way to make people engage with the world as real, um, but make the character more universal. And you see something like Jeff Smith's Bone or Dave Sims' Cerebus or like the entire history of Japanese animation, starting with stuff like Astro Boy, like the idea of a very, very cartoony, simple, blobby figure as your as your character um, is meant to make you identify more with the character, um, but making the backdrop like realistic and lush. That, that's something Miyazaki does all the time. So, well, let me ask you this because this is this is your this is a realm you understand a you can, great you deal can more than I do. Use the word geek; it's okay. Yeah, I just but what I'm but give me an example of something in the main that does that does this. Uh, because because these examples you're giving me are, are all people who are not really going out on a limb, including them in graphic novels or or whatever. It's not or or, or um, anime or something. I, I on, a, on a on a large commercial level. I mean, I feel like the good dinosaur is risking being quite disconcerting. Uh, to a, to a mainstream audience that's not used to these sorts of contrasts. Well, I mean, one of the reasons I I don't sympathize with like Arlo and his family as much as I should is because I have seen designs like this in animation before. I mean, to me, Arlo is this kind of like knock kneed, big eyed, big headed dinosaur. Like we we literally saw this exact same thing in Land Before Time, which is a very mainstream movie that made a billion dollars and went on to spawn what, 37,000 sequels at this point? Um, or if you look at the the T-Rexes, actually look very, very visually right down to the coloration like the T-Rexes in We're Back, which was another big animation like featuring dinosaurs not that long ago and was also very mainstream. And both of those use the same kind of like lush, realistic uh, backdrop. Uh, if I recall correctly, We're Back used uh, like actual rotoscoping in order to create backdrops that looked like actual cities and CGI as well. I mean, like, to me, one of the problems with The Good Dinosaur is, again, with that that feeling of I've seen this before, is I've seen so many animated dinosaurs and I've seen so many stories involving animated dinosaurs. This just... The characters didn't have a visual innovation for me in to the same degree like that the backdrop did. Sure, but but the backdrop is kind of amazing. Oh, no, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, I, I don't want to underplay... Like the the absolutely stunning accomplishments made here, particularly in the creation of the water. Like the the water is like nothing I've ever seen in an animated movie, and I mean that is sort of what I wanted to get at with the the innovation topic is the degree to which they have accomplished something here that nobody's ever accomplished something before. One thing I do want to hear what you guys think about though is is this something that they should be accomplishing? Should we be going for photorealism in animation? I would say I usually would say no, except I saw this movie. And it was great. I mean, I I don't think photorealism across the board would be good, which which is why I like what they did here mm-hmm. is they contrasted and they just used photorealism in an aspect of the movie. And it's like I was saying before is that I feel that Pixar has reached the point where there's only so much innovation they can do in terms of making th- things look realistic, and now they are being innovative in terms of stylizing things um, in unusual ways. You saw it in the look of Inside Out this year. And you know those are very unusual-looking Pixar characters. They're 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 cartoony. They're very cartoony, yet rendered beautifully. And I think maybe we're seeing a shift away from, even though obviously we're talking about how eye-poppingly gorgeous the visuals are here. I think there's more a sh- there's a shift toward more unusual visuals than realistic visuals if that makes sense yeah i think the story had worked better and it had been emotionally engaging from start to finish instead of just here and there i don't think we necessarily would be having would have we'd have this complaint i i almost feel like you know it just seems like a lost opportunity in a way because you do get that you know the opening of film especially it's like this is animation <laughs> this is incredible this is kind of this is disconcerting and strange and kind of kind of wonderful you kind of wish that the film that the, the, the content of the film itself were, were as 
bold. It had that kind of Wally quality of just like, let's just go as far out on a limb as we can. Let's make this a, a real visual experience. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I never like to talk about it's. A, I'm, I'm guilty, now guilty of the thing I don't like critics to do, which is to talk about what a film should do because I'm not a filmmaker. But, but it did feel like on a story level, it was a very puny film for a mm-hmm. film that on a visual level, it was quite large and on, and on a conceptual level it was also huge. Uh, it's just too puny an, uh, an idea to, to, to fit um, something, something that, that's conceptually big. I'm with Scott on that, but like one way that you could highlight it most, I think, is just by looking at the characters that aren't Arlo and Spot. You know, one of the things that's so fascinating about Toy Story is that vocally, visually, and on a just a basic character level, every single character that becomes significant enough in Toy Story to keep around for the other films is distinctive. The characters in Good Dinosaur, an awful lot of them are not distinctive at all. And the one voiced by Sam Elliott, who has a huge scar on his face and a backstory that goes with it and a moral lesson to deliver and like a, <laughs> a, a, a profession and a family, like that character is distinctive, but he's distinctive in a Pixar way that so few of the other ones are. And like the band of pterodactyls that just kind of vaguely recalls somewhere between the vultures and Jungle Book and the hyenas and the Lion King. Uh, and which break down into kind of the leader one, the girl one, the crazy one, and the follower one. And then you see that exact same pattern in the velociraptors that they meet later. I was just like, who are these characters? Like, they don't feel like Pixar characters. They're goofy voices and not really much else. It feels like a bunch of shorts. Uh, kind yeah. Of, kind of swisher, which might be a good segue into Sanjay's super team. I, I, I was going to do... Let's do a lightning round to kind of wind, to wind things down here. We'll get to that. But first, okay. I saw this film in 2D. Should I have seen it in 3D? I saw it in 3D. I think it looked pretty neat. I Yeah, I, if I've only seen one version, it's really hard to t- say whether you should have seen the other. We saw yeah. it in 3D. We right? saw it in 3D, okay. yeah. Um, there, there was nothing about the 3D that made me go, whoa. Which right. is is kind of the litmus test for whether the 3D is worth it. Like it looked very deep and rich in that way that you know 3D can look if it's bright enough. Which I guess that's a was. good qualifier. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There wasn't any like I, I forgot it was in 3D most of the time. Okay. So earlier this year we had the universally acclaimed Inside Out with the universally reviled mm-hmm. Lava. Uh, here we have <laughs> the universally. Eh, the Good Dinosaur with uh, Sanjay Super Team, which I thought was terrific. I, I really enjoyed Sanjay Super Team. It was, it was one of my favorite Disney, so or good. it was one of my yeah. favorite Pixar shorts in ages. And, and and I was not what I was expecting in any way, and it was so, so beautiful and, and moving. And and, uh, and I see Scott looking confused. I'll let you guys talk about this because no, it, it didn't, didn't do it for you. No, I didn't. Oh, okay. I didn't. I mean, I I, I really. I, they almost never work for me. The, the, the shorts, Pixar, the Pixar shorts. Really? I'm I'm, a, I'm wow. completely. Uh, yeah, so I'll let so, you guys so talk. I suppose you're not interested in the, the little tidbit I know it's about Toy Story, where the books on Andy's shelves are all the titles of Pixar shorts. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> wow, I thought that, that is, was cute. That, that is a fun. That detail. is a good tidbit. Yeah. But uh, but please, I, I want to hear more about this. Uh, well, wait, wait. I before we get deeper into Sanjay's Super Team, you said Pixar shorts almost never work for you. Is there like one or two that really work for you? Well, nothing really. I mean, I like Luxo Jr. <laughs> <laughs> Who even remembers that? It's not like they made that the, the symbol I, I, of Pixar. Or anything. Just be honest, God. The short is when you're out getting popcorn, right? You just never it's watch like, it. No, it's, it was like, maybe like I've just seen eight trailers and now I got to watch this <laughs> this thing, you know. But uh, but no, I I, uh, I can recognize at least that this short is uh, visually striking. <laughs> But please, I, I want to hear why it's great. For one thing, just on a on a really basic level, it's a story we haven't seen before. It's it's the ethnic diversity that Pixar has been missing, and like the entire American animation world has been missing forever. Like, when have we actually seen a story before in mainstream modern animation that's about? a boy and his father that actually delves into their culture and their religion Mm -hmm. in such depth, in such a short time period, in such a personal way. Like this is Sanjay Patel, the the writer director, like this is about him and his father. And it, you can feel this is what I want more of in the good dinosaur is that personal connection. And that like that alone did it for me. Like even leaving aside how visually exciting it was. Well, well, let me, 
question this though like do you really feel like the film expressed anything religiously or spiritually at all i mean, I, I, I get the relationship between the father and son but uh but all of the all of the business uh all of the religious business had no resonance for me whatsoever i think it was a kid making it like sort of a first connection mm-hmm. between you know what fascinates him what what he likes about superheroes and what about this sort of american american culture he was born into um like finding these sort of themes in and in, in, in hindu myth as well um i think it was really nicely done just sort of um and, and without really drawing too fine a point on it and uh, um you know with or be too cutesy about it just kind of like there's this there's this and and in some ways they're kind of doing the same thing and i was uh, I, I liked it also it looked great yeah it was gorgeous. And I think volumetrically, I shed more tears during Sanjay's super team than the entirety of Good Dinosaur. So. But that was just like, those were spectacle tears. Like, I don't know if, if you guys get that, but like when you're overwhelmed by the beauty of something, mm-hmm. you cry. That was that was me during that we're entire t- short. We're talking about lava, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, like... I can say that this is a lot better than lava. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not Although that. I'm not that much of an idiot. Didn't walk out humming the uh, the theme from Sanjay's Super Team after the movie. No, I. I mean, I, yeah, I think that this move, this this short does say some interesting things about religion, and not just that connection, that personal connection between where he's connecting, you know, the American pop culture that he's steeped in with his father's culture and his father's attempts to bring him into that culture, like. I mean, I went home and looked up who are these deities. Like, I recognized Shiva, and I was pretty sure I recognized Hanuman, but I had no idea who Durga was and, like, had to, like, look up and, and read more about that. And I actually ended up talking to my husband about it, and he said that, uh, like, some of what we're seeing is almost more of a, like, a Buddhist aspect of meditation and of the idea of demons existing in the world to test you and to create enlightenment through conflict. And that that's sort of what we're seeing on a philosophical level happen in this uh, this short piece. I mean, it is just a big fight sequence, but it's a fight sequence with, like, some fairly deep metaphorical underpinnings that take a little bit of unpacking. And you can think about it or not think about it as you choose. But if you do choose to think about it and then do the research and read the interviews with him, like there's a lot there. there this is this short is like a bookmark put in place for a larger experience, a larger cultural experience you can have if you go looking past it, which I think he certainly means for you to do. That said, I, I want the Sanjay super team movie. Like I want to know more about Sanjay's life and like his life outside that room. Yep, I would like to see a protagonist like Sanjay too uh, in, in Pixar stable. There's not yeah. overabundance of, of of non-white characters in yeah. uh, Pixar films. So, which is, I, I think, something that they've dodged criticism about. Not that they necessarily deserve a lot of criticism for, it, but because you know their characters tend to be non-humanoid, so they, you know, race and to a lesser extent gender isn't such of a talking point, but. Because of that, it was really nice to see a specific culture represented in a Pixar film in a way that I, I really can't, I, unless like maybe like French culture and Ratatouille, but <laughs> y- you know, uh, for the most part, they're in their kind of own little worlds that don't necessarily have resonance in our world. The Scottish have a Pixar movie to call their That's own. true. Of, of course. Of course. <laughs> and Hawaii has a Pixar film to call it. It's called Lava. So let's put The Good Dinosaur and Toy Story and Lava and Sanjay Super Team behind us for now. Uh, the Good Dinosaur is currently in wide release with Sanjay Super Team in both 2D and 3D. Toy Story is available for online rental on a wide variety of home video formats. And again, the Blu-ray and DVD stuff uh, is fantastic mm-hmm. on there. If you want to look under the hood of a Pixar film, treat yourself to the Blu-ray. We'll be back in just a moment with our recommendation segment, Your Next Picture Show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Uh, Tasha, want to kick us off? Well, uh, if you're the kind of person who exhaustively watches every featurette on every disc you own, this will be a completely useless recommendation to you. But if you're like me and you tend to watch deleted scenes 
interviews and then move on to the next movie. Uh, I want to point out that on some of the Pixar discs uh, are a series of shorts called Studio Stories. And these are behind the scenes looks at things happening at Pixar in the voices of some of the animators, animated in a very, very simple style. I rewatched Toy Story 3 for this segment and then immediately went on to watch all of the studio stories on that disc. And they are fabulous, just like little stories about aspects of working at Pixar, like eating a lot of cereal because apparently they have the world's biggest cereal bank as part of their studio. Or the animator who discovered when he moved into his new office, he had a uh, ventilation shaft that led to a completely blocked in room where he built a second office, which then became like the gathering place for the entire world, apparently. There are some really, really fun things in there um, that I had just kind of skipped over on my first several viewings of uh, like the Pixar oeuvre because there's so much to watch. Uh, The second thing is Josh Spiegel, uh, who is a friend of all of ours, a critic for Movie Mezzanine and the host of Mousterpiece Theater, uh, the podcast about all things Disney, um, has put out a small book. It's called Yesterday is Forever, Nostalgia and Pixar Animation Studios. He sent me an early copy and I actually blurbed the book because I liked it so much. And I think anybody who it was like deeply fascinated in Pixar enough to listen to us talk about it for nearly two hours is probably going to love this book. It's a very dissolvy kind of specific deep dive into the Pixar movies, specifically within the realm of how they deal with nostalgia, how they focus nostalgia, how they harness it, how they address it in different ways, looking forward, looking back, either evoking it or uh, creating it in just a really wide variety of ways. It's very, very thought through. It's very rigorous. It's very detailed, but it's also very accessible and inter- entertaining. It's a pretty short book. I think anybody who, who loved The Dissolve and loved like the, that specific kind of criticism will find that this is basically a small book length Dissolve essay about films that hopefully we all love. Highly recommended. I, I would just want to note that uh, Ricky and the Flash uh, is out on Blu-ray and DVD mm. and, and available for rent on, on on-demand services. Mm. And none of people saw it. And I think it, it kind of suffered from having a, a puzzling marketing campaign that sold it as, as sort of like a uplifting story of a family that gets its shit together, which it really isn't. It's about a family about how families never get their shit together, but they kind of are work anyway. And 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 how we learn to kind of live with with the dysfunction that that uh, that families uh, tend to create. And and uh, Meryl Streep's great in it. It's directed by Jonathan Demi, who is in Scott's use Scott's phrase a national treasure. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, has a, a sort of a, a a touch to that sort of uh, um, ensemble drama that nobody else uh, could bring to it. And and uh, it deserves a second chance. Correct me if I'm wrong, but everybody at this table is like a super fan of that movie. Yeah. 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 yeah really like yeah, it. I, I think that's the movie I've spent the most energy this year trying to convince people is actually worth their time. But one of my coworkers said, um, um, like, like I wrote about it for a home video column I do, and one of my coworkers said, yeah, I went to see it as a joke, and I really loved it. I think I think people, I think it, it looked like a bad movie, but it's mm-hmm. not a bad movie at all. It was yeah. one of the worst trailers of the year. Yeah. And it's, it's an, it was an August castaway. I don't think... I think Hollywood now just does not have the ability to promote anything that isn't just product. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's a very unusual character-driven f- film. Um, I think it's completely accessible and fun uh, and, and, and rich, but uh, and it, really probably the year's most underrated film. I mean, what film has been, you know, has received deserved more love than that one and i hate to keep being so controversial but that street lady is a pretty good actress (laughs) and she's actually also a a really fun singer like her Mm -hmm. performance in this movie is is pretty amazing springfield too (laughs) yeah oh he's he's a real surprise Mm -hmm. scott how about you oh okay uh hello um well uh tasha you will you you're gonna you're gonna back me up on this uh, I would like to recommend f- a film called Democrats. Uh, this is a documentary about the drafting of a new constitution in Zimbabwe following two men from opposing political camps, one representing the d- dictatorship of Robert Mugabe and the other representing an increasingly popular democratic movement in the country. Uh, and these two men, they start they could not start further <laughs> apart. I mean, you think about how polarized the U.S. is. These guys are very polarized. There are all sorts of shenanigans happening around them, but it's remarkable to witness firsthand. And this film really gets in, uh, you know, it's it's right there with them, you know, just how the process itself forces these men to, to make compromises and to, and to really forge this document. It's it's extraordinary to to witness and you know, kind of heartbreaking ultimately. 
too. Man, I mean, if you can imagine like Bush and Clinton when they were up against each other, going on the road together in a in a van, like going around to different places doing polls, and realizing that the system was so corrupt that they have more in common with each other than they have with some of the people that are running the country. <laughs> it's it's a yeah. really startling film in a lot of ways, and the access that the director gets. I interviewed her uh, out of. Tribeca for the dissolve because I loved this film so much. So yeah, yeah I mean it's currently playing at Film Forum. It probably will have closed uh, by the time uh, this airs. But I think you probably it's probably going to trickle out, and it's something to kind of just put put down for future Netflix. Uh, it's it'll find its way to streaming. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, totally amazing. Seek fi- that puppy out. Finally, uh, stepping from behind the boards uh, this episode. Thank you, Genevieve. Uh, Genevieve, what is your uh, recommendation? I'm excited because I have something that is in theaters and I think will still be in theaters by the time this drops, which is Brooklyn. Yeah, Brooklyn. Brooklyn. I uh, knew you would like Brooklyn. Uh, yeah, it, it was uh, Brooklyn. Is, oh, it's it's Genevieve Catnip for sure. I've I've, I've I, I have to admit to myself at this point that I'm just kind of a Nick Hornby fangirl. I, I just I really like all of his adaptations. This is uh, a Nick Hornby adaptation of a book by Colm Colm Toybin. <laughs> um, but yes, this is a Nick Hornby adaptation, and it's uh, kind of my favorite uh, Nick Hornby mode, uh, which is like doing a period piece, because I really love and, and education, too. Um, it's a immigrant story in the uh, 1950s. Uh, it's about an Irish immigrant played by Shersha Ronan, um, who is uh, coming to the States on her own, and it's sort of a coming-of-age... It's a romance, but it's not... It's not swooningly romantic. It's a very kind of like pr- pragmatic romance. Um, and it's it's much more about her kind of finding her way and finding herself in this new country. And um, it's it's just wonderful. It's it's wonderfully acted. Um, the male love interest is played by Emery Cohen, who uh, you may remember is Leo from Smash, Tasha. Uh, <laughs> um, which that that performance did not endear him to me. But this one very, very much did. Um, he is is just great. Um yeah, uh, go see it if you if you can. It should. I think it'll it'll hang around for oh, a couple weeks be, at least. It's, Oscar yeah, it's, it's, it's got a lot sure. of Oscar buzz. If you're if you're so. seconding and I'm thirteen, have you seen it yet, Tasha? No, oh, I've got the goodness. screener at home. You'll like it. So oh, uh, I yeah, that's a tear. That, that's a tear. That's, yeah. you know that's legit. Did not cry. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Weird. Yeah. Good dinosaur. But 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 I just I just had hearts popping off my head and the whole time. So it just it looked like. The fashion's kind of great in it. Too. Oh, I love the production design. Yeah, it, really it is, is beautiful. Um, yeah, Mwah. can't can't recommend it strongly enough. Totally. <laughs> All right, thanks. I definitely want to check out Democrats and and uh, Josh's book. I, I will go order it right now. Well, that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Before closing the book on this week's episode, let's reveal the movie pairing for our next episode, which drops the week of December 21st. This Christmas, we'll see the limited release of The Revenant, directed by Alejandro González Iñárritu of Birdman and Babel fame, and starring Leonardo DiCaprio in an Oscar-courting performance. We've all seen The Revenant and will have lots to say about it, but we're more excited to compare and contrast it to another story of wilderness survival and group madness in a beautiful but hostile setting, Werner Herzog's Agira, The Wrath of God. It's available to rent via Amazon, iTunes, and the rest of the usual suspects, and it's streaming for Fandor members. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's episode of Toy Story, The Good Dinosaur, anything else film-related or Pixar-related. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. In the meantime, where can we find everyone these days? You can find me at uprocks.com uh, and uh, where I'm heading up the film and TV coverage and on Twitter at kphips3000. I'm at Genevieve Kosky on Twitter and uh, you can find me editing the Next Picture Show podcast uh, for, <laughs> for the foreseeable future. You can find me doing film criticism at The Verge. Uh, I'm hoping by the time this comes out, I will have just had an interview with Alex Robinson up at Comics Journal. And uh, you can always find me on Twitter at at Tasha Robinson. Uh, I'm uh, on Twitter. I'm at Scott underscore Tobias, and I'm a lot of different places: NPR, Variety, New York Times, Washington Post, Rolling Stone, uh, Gentleman's Quarterly, uh, and uh, and Oscilloscope's Musings blog. So uh, you're a and, Renaissance and, and, man, right? I mean, if somebody else has a publication, then well, I'll, I'll write for them too. Um, so uh, yeah, that's what I'll be. As always, thanks to Film Spotting for all their help, input, and support. We hope you'll tune in next time. Mm-hmm.